Well, let me add my welcome uh, to Charlotte Chapel this morning. It's great to be together, to have the opportunity to uh, sing God's praises and to meet with God's family. And I want to give you a warm welcome. This is your first time here. Please hope you can stick around and uh, grab a coffee and introduce yourself so we can get to know you. You wondered earlier, what does an excited look of uh, a group of elders look like on a Saturday morning? There they are. Can you see that? If we could zoom in, you can see they're all smiling. They're all beaming. Uh, we're all excited about uh, this amazing, well, we've, we've seen amazing answers to prayer, really, that has led us to the point where actually we have the keys to Shamwick Place building. And we want to acknowledge all his goodness and the way that he's uh, leading us forward in this and acknowledge the way that he's been blessing and helping us as a church to get to that point. So that's what smiling elders look like. Uh, we try and encourage um, some reading of good books and uh, the book uh, of the month, we might stretch it to a book of two months maybe, um, is this book by Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. Tim Keller has written the number one New York bestseller, The Reason for God. And this is a great follow-up book which talks about the place of work. How should we think about work? What does the Bible have to say about work? Uh, most of us spend a lot of our lives doing work, and I would really encourage you to think about reflecting what the Bible has to say. Grab hold of this book. I think there's still about seven copies left in the book room downstairs. And uh, nine pounds, three quid cheaper than you can get anywhere else, apparently. So there we are. Let's pray. Father, we have sung your praises. We've asked, Lord, that you would draw near to us and reveal more of your glory. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who perfectly reflects who you are. And uh, we thank you that we can now uh, look at what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Give us understanding. Would you shine the light of your glory into our hearts to reveal what is there. Uh, Lord, we pray that not only would your word bring conviction where it's needed, but also encouragement uh, that Christ is our Savior who can transform our lives. Please meet with us, each one of us this day. We ask in his precious name. Amen. Well, on um, February the 14th, um, Valentine's Day, we had kind of the, the shocking news of um, Reva Steenkamp, um, the girlfriend of the Paralympian Oscar Pretorius, um, who um, had been killed by the shooting at his house. And the trial will be scheduled to determine whether this was intentional or whether it was um, culpable homicide. Either way, it's an absolutely tragic event uh, that has taken the life of one person and it has forever changed the life of the other uh, because of a, of a gun being recklessly shot uh, within a home. That tragedy is happening um, all over Scotland today. That tragedy is happening in Christian homes and in Christian churches today. 
And I want to explain that to you. Um, I, I know a man who used to attend um, weekly, early morning, Saturday prayer meetings. And um, he was always there on church on Sunday. And he thought of himself as a, as a good Christian man. Um, he was trying his best to make a living for his wife and children. Uh, he saw himself as a real asset to the church, someone who should be an elder at the church. But what he didn't see was that he was a very angry man. His wife and his daughters knew that he was a very angry man, but he didn't know it. He didn't see it. At home, humor could kind of quickly move into grumbling and criticism and condemnation and contempt. Moody silences could erupt into bickering and shouting. And then Sunday morning would come around and they'd get into the car and they'd play happy families, uh, turning up to church. But often the family felt as if it was just walking on eggshells. They lived in fear because at any moment, according to him, they would make him angry. And I was asked to help out almost too late in the day, really. Um, I, 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 you know, a number of us tried to help this uh, this couple in the final years of a disintegrating marriage. But the effects of years and years of anger had done its damage uh, and embittered, um, disheartened wife, uh, one daughter with an eating disorder who didn't see the point of Christianity, and a man really watching his life and his dreams disintegrating in front of him. Now, what does Jesus have to say about this religious man? Well, please open your Bibles to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, to page 969. We're several slides on now, Alistair. And uh, we're going to read from uh, verse 21 to... 26. So Matthew chapter 5, reading from verse 21 to 26. Well, let's start from verse 20, shall we? For I tell you, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly 
with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Let's keep this passage open. We're going to explore it together. What we have here is Jesus teaching this most famous uh, sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And um, he's really been teaching what the life of the Christian should look like. What should the life of the Christian look like? And he's teaching with great authority what God's law really means for one of his disciples. Now imagine if I stood here today and said to you something like this. Well, you've heard uh, in the past the teaching of, of Peter Granger and Derek Prime and Gerald Griffiths and Sid Lobaxas, past pastors of this church. Uh, they've tried to tell you what the Bible is about. But now, today, I will tell you what it is really about. Now, you don't feel a bit, whew, that's a bit audacious, Paul, to be saying something like that. And of course, I'm not saying that, so don't panic. But actually, what Jesus says is even more kind of audacious and shocking than that. Um, he claimed, we saw it last week, he claimed that basically uh, he is the pivotal point of all history. That the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the first part of our Bibles, all point to him. The Old Testament is promising that he would come, and he came. And the New Testament all spells out the significance of his coming. And what Jesus is saying uh, over six times now in the rest of this chapter is he contrasts the way the teachers of his day interpreted the law, the way they taught about the Old Testament law. And he says, well, actually, let me tell you the truth about what God's law really says. What you've heard up to now is wrong. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, the significance of God's law for someone who's a follower of Jesus, someone who's in the kingdom. And we're going to see over again this sort of phrase, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus is speaking with this incredible authority. You've heard it said about this, this and this, but I tell you this. This is the way that you should now view God's law as a Christian. This is, this is the true significance of God's law for the Christians. That's what's going on here. And um, he, he, in a sense, you could look at verse 20 and see it almost as a summary sentence for the whole of the sermon. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your, your right living surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he wants to teach us what uh, real righteous living looks like. And it's more than just religious rule keeping. He wants to teach us what surpassing righteousness really looks like. And his first example is murder, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject 
to judgment. Now, when you read that, it seems like a kind of a fair summary of the Old Testament position on uh, what the law has to say about murder. But actually, Jesus is being critical here. Uh, In the Ten Commandments, it simply says, uh, you shall not murder, full stop. And what they did is that they added uh, a bit later in the law from Numbers, uh, this, this second part, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And what is the criticism here? It's quite a subtle one, but I think what he's criticizing is that by adding to the Ten Commandments, Jesus sees that their attempt is to take God's law and make it manageable, to kind of reduce its significance, to limit its application. And that's exactly what he sees in his day, so that the religious people of Jesus' day could uh, walk around and say, well, yes, I am a righteous person because I've not murdered anyone. I don't know whether you've ever had a conversation with someone like this. I've had it a few times where people have basically said to me, well, do you know what? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Why are you a good person? I've not killed anybody. I'm a good person. But like my angry friends who religiously attended church meetings and prayer meetings, and consider himself to be a good Christian man for that reason, Jesus would want him to consider more carefully his life and the significance of God's commands. Look at verse 22. You've heard it said, Jesus said, verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now, this is, a, this is a strong warning to us. Be warned, Jesus says, we can commit the sin of murder well before the act of murder. We can be committing the sin of murder well before the act of murder. And we commit murder in our hearts by our angry thoughts. That's what Jesus is warning us about here. Now, anger is something that we do with all that we are as a person. Uh, It involves our body. Maybe you get flushed face, an adrenaline surge, um, clenching our muscles, a churning stomach, nervous tension, flared nostrils. Uh, It can feel like something surging up inside of us, can't it? And anger can start, can be be anything on a spectrum from starting to feel irritated right the way through to blind rage. It can include grumpiness, sulking, self-pity, a critical spirit. David Pallinson describes anger in this way as a whole justice system. What anger is, is a whole justice system except for a defense lawyer for the accused. So in our heads, uh, what's going out, it's playing out is that there's an investigation going on in our heads. There's a prosecuting witness, there's a judge, there's a jury, and there's a hangman in our head. And as we stew in our anger, 
we are basically judging and finding wanting the person that's before us or the situation that is before us. And words and actions get thought out and planned long before they ever launch into the world. And as we nurse our anger and think of revenge, think of ways that we're going to get back at people. I don't get angry, I get even, some people say. Well, we're committing murder in our hearts. But more than that, Jesus warns us that we commit murder through angry words. So it goes on in verse uh, 21. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, uh, the word Raka is an Aramaic insult, basically questioning somebody's intelligence. It's basically saying, you're empty up here. You're a numbskull. You're an idiot. Uh, you're, you're brainless. You're witless. And, you know, you can have fun thinking about all the different insults you could come up with along those lines. But actually, when they're said with intent to hurt, those are words that are beginning to stab people. And the, if, if, if Raka is, intelli- is questioning sort of the... Uh, the, the, the mind, the intelligence of a person, then um, calling someone a fool is to insult their heart and their character. Uh, the, the psalmist says this, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And so these angry words are basically assassinating a person's reputation and character. And the truth is our words can be like bullets from a gun, we fire them off. Words of contempt, words that despise, words that belittle, words that uh, show our disgust. Uh, we can even take normal words and just say them in a certain pointed way, in a, in a cutting way to stab and to harm, can't we? Jesus warns us that we can be breaking one of the Ten Commandments, do not murder, through our sinful anger. Long before the act of murder comes murderous thoughts and words. So that's what our Old Testament reading was telling us back in Genesis 4, wasn't it? Uh, When God looks with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain, it says this, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. You see, the whole body is affected by this anger. His face was downcast. He was very angry. And God graciously warned Cain. The Lord said to him, why are you angry? Why are your face downcast? If you do what is right, you'll not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you and you must master it. But instead of listening to God's words, Uh, Cain allows that anger to fester and that murderous heart finally takes action and he kills his brother. That's the truth about sinful anger. 
And that's what my friend needs to come to terms with. You know, you may think he's a, a good religious man who's not killed anyone, but the truth was for years he'd been slowly killing his wife and slowly killing his children by his anger, his rage. Now, I know the gospel does speak about Jesus being angry. The Bible's quite clear that God gets angry. And so not all anger is sinful. In fact, anger can be righteous. It can be right. When we see injustice, when we see something that is wrong and, and, and we get angry to see it, that, that is not a sinful thing. That is a right response. But I think it's probably safe to say that most of the time our anger is not against injustice and unrighteousness. We're just angry because people have just got in our way. I don't know what percentage you put on it. 99% of our anger, 95, let's be generous, is probably sinful anger. And so we've got to listen to the, the serious warning of Jesus here in verse 22. The angry person is in danger of the fire of hell. See, sinful anger is, is not just destructive to the angry person and to all those around him, but it breaks God's law and it puts us in danger of God's judgment. The word for hell here is Gehenna, and it was, uh, it was a, an infamous rubbish dump outside Jerusalem that was perpetually burning because that rubbish was being burnt down there, and it became this in a terrifying picture of God's judgment, this fire that never goes out. Now, I understand that Jesus really was the most loving person that there ever was. And yet here we see that he was a hellfire preacher. He preached and warned us about hell. And he does so not with any sort of delight, but as an urgent warning that people who persist in sinful anger are in danger of judgment and hell. Angry people need salvation. Angry people need a savior. Are you an angry person? Are you an angry person? I think the truth is that every human being deals with anger. We live in a world of, of disappointments, of imperfections, of miseries and sins, our own and others. And anger is a given reality. The tragedy of murder is happening all around Scotland today, but it'll never make the newspaper. Not immediately anyway. The tragedy of murder is happening in Christian homes and in Christian churches. We need a savior. And here's the good news. Jesus came to be our savior. 
He, he came to save us from the judgment of hell. That, that, that's why Jesus came. He, he was never sinfully angry. And he came to be our substitute, to swap places with us on the cross, to soak up the fire of hell in himself, in our place, so that we could be forgiven, so that we don't have to fear the judgment of God. And, and, and the other wonderful thing about his coming as a savior is that he's not just coming to save us from judgment on a final day. His salvation is such that he wants to change us, change us from the inside out. He wants to transform our hearts to save us from the ongoing effects of a sinful heart. Jesus has come to change angry people into loving people. Angry people into peaceful people. Angry people into peace-making people. If you could help me if you switch that off, that'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. What's your point? Were you getting angry? <laughs> you couldn't hear it. You need a deaf aid mode. You know, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, uh, says this amazing thing about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. One of the amazing things about Jesus is that even as he was being um, crucified on the cross, he said these words, um, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I want to tell you that we've all got a sin problem and Jesus has come to be our savior. He's come to offer this gift of forgiveness, this promise that he can transform and change our hearts. And I want to say to you, have you received this gift? Have you received Jesus? Have you received his salvation? He would lovingly warn us as if we are people who give way to sinful, selfish anger. We're in danger of the fires of hell and he has come to be our savior from that. Have you received him? Have you taken this gift? Have you come to realize that your anger is a problem, that you need his forgiveness? Come to him today. Pray to him, ask his forgiveness, ask him to change you. He would delight to do that. That's why God has come. God loves you. He recognizes that we're in a messed up world and he's come to redeem us and to change us and transform us. The change from being an angry person to being a peaceful person comes when we start realizing that the anger is a sin issue. I think people, uh, angry people often say that actually they're angry, it's, it's not their fault. It's just everybody else around them. It's my wife who makes me angry. It's my children who make me angry. It's the, it's the amount of traffic in this city that makes me angry. Now the truth is, these are all different pressure points that reveal what's really inside of you. If I had a, uh, you know, here's some water here. Uh, if I knock the glass over and water comes out, 
The water came out not because I knocked it. The water came out because there was water in the glass. We, we have sinful hearts that when the pressure and tensions come, we get knocked and bumped. That sin comes out. And the beginning place of transformation, hope, is realizing that, that our sinful anger, our cutting words, our rage is because we've got a sinful heart that needs to be changed. And then repenting of that and coming to this king who will forgive our sins and transform us is the way to begin to head forward. So what we've got here is, is Jesus teaching the full intent of God's law. That the command, you shall not murder, was not simply just to sort of say, don't you know, stab someone or shoot someone. It's saying something much deeper than that about the whole attitude of the way we treat people, whether we're going to treat people with respect and gentleness and love and care. And Jesus wants to teach us what surpassing righteousness looks like. And so he continues teaching not just the negative aspects of it, he wants to teach the positive aspects of it. This is what surpassing righteousness looks like. This is what a life that is transformed looks like. Verse 23 gives us two practical stories. First one, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now in Jesus' day, uh, traveling from Nazareth, where he was teaching at this point, and uh, heading to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice, well, that's, that, that's, a, that's a trip that's about 70 miles. Uh, without a car, without a bus, you're on foot or on a donkey. 70-mile trip. Now, here's how seriously uh, we should um, take reconciliation as Christians. You know, imagine this situation back in the first century. You'd gone all the way to the temple in Jerusalem. There you are, you had your lamb, you had your offering at the temple, and you're just about to take it to be sacrificed. And you think to yourself, oh, my brother or my sister has got something against me. I wronged them, and there's, there's something, there's a problem. Now, here's how important reconciliation is. It would be better to just put that lamb, tie it up, put it back down there, and travel 70 miles back up to hometown and sort it out. Go and be reconciled and then come back and offer your gift. In another 70 mile trip, then come and do that. Do you see this, how important reconciliation is according to Jesus? What a problem he sees is if we're living in um, angriness and uh, broken down relationships. This is the priority of a peacemaking disciple. This is what surpassing righteousness looks like. It's not simply a commitment not to murder. It is a commitment not to allow anger to fester. Not to allow discord and disagreement to drag out. And so here we are in church on Sunday. And it's a communion Sunday. Um, it would be foolish today to take part in, in taking the bread and the cup if we are living with a sort of a broken down relationship with our brothers or sisters, with our wife or our kids. It would be foolish to take of this table uh, as an act of worship to God if actually uh, there's really hatred seething in our hearts. There's a grievance 
It's something that keeps plaguing our thoughts that, oh, they did that to me, I can't believe it. Or, oh, I'm feeling bad that I said that, did that, and it's still unresolved. Jesus would say, actually, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, and the next hymn, leave and go and sort it out. Maybe they're in the room with you here, so maybe don't take part in the communion and make it a, a priority to go to them today and resolve that issue. Say, look, I, I fear that I fear that I may have wronged you in some way. Can we talk about it? Jesus has, has warned us. But we, we need to see too that we need to be those who go and reconcile. First go and be reconciled. Make it a priority. It's more important than uh, public worship. In fact, we cannot really pretend that we're worshiping God if at the same time we're hating our brothers. It's a nonsense. It doesn't work. And actually, if we persist in a life like that, and if our children see us acting like that, then no wonder if they turn away. And there's the priority of reconciling uh, with brothers, but there's also the importance of speedily resolving disputes with adversaries. Look at verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. This is uh, good legal advice you're getting from Jesus. Uh, some, of, uh, some of our brothers in this, uh, in this room make a lot of good money giving this advice to people. Yeah, again, in this story, the, 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 the person that he's talking about is guilty. He's, he's wronged someone. He owes some money. He's somehow defaulted on a debt. And Jesus urges us to speedily put right what is wrong. Settle matters quickly. You're going to have to pay in the end. You might as well sort it out earlier to avoid the damage that can fall out. It's a damage limitation argument. You can either work out a way of settling the problem on the way to court, or you can end up facing worse consequences in front of the judge where you get handed over and thrown into prison, where you're going to have to pay the last penny anyway, but you're not going to be able to earn any money to, to do it. You're going to be in a far worse state. And by these stories, Jesus is practically teaching us how we should respond when we begin to see the start of murder in our hearts and murder in our thoughts. We need to repent of that sin. And we need to be people who first go to be reconciled with those that we've wronged. We should be those who are quick to settle issues. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, uh, Paul warns uh, in, in the book of Ephesians. Ask God to forgive you and reach out to reconcile. Let's just bow our heads and have a moment of silence. Is there someone you need to reconcile with today?
we hear this encouragement from Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Let's prepare our hearts and worship God as we sing this hymn, as we come to the table, come and see.